Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, building Marine Corps momentum through the budget request. You have to be able to plug that back into your learning process and make adjustments on as you go, which which this budget allows us to do, keep that momentum going. One of the Coast Guard's biggest needs isn't at sea. Most of our infrastructure investment has been where we've been whacked by hurricanes. You know, the folks that are in the Great Lakes are praying for hurricanes to come up there so you can get some new infrastructure. That's not a good model to have. And the Chief of Naval Operations on the path forward for his service. I personally think you're on the right path. That path is not popular with everybody in this room, certainly not on the Hill, but I believe it's a responsible path. It's Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Drone swarms with up to a thousand unmanned aircraft may be possible within five years. Kenneth Plax, the acting director of the Strategic Technology Office at DARPA, says the agency's already tested as many as 100 drones in a swarm. One program deployed a drone swarm against mock-up targets at Yuma Proving Ground in Arizona. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation will get a new chief data officer. Jeffrey Niebauer will take over for Jacques Villar. Villar will leave the FDIC at the end of May. You'll find more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming next week, April 14th, at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new budget request from the Biden administration includes decommissioning ships that members of Congress think the Navy should keep. It also has the sea services spending more money on cyber and information warfare. The budget request and how it fits strategy the services and administration have released was one of the topics at the Chiefs Leadership Panel at Sea Air Space hosted by the Navy League. I'm grateful to the Navy League for inviting me to host that panel Monday with the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, and the Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz. In this highlight of the panel, Admiral Gilday lays out how he organizes thinking about the budget. I think it's important to think about the Navy across at least three domains, under, above, and on the sea, uh, to also think about the investments we're making in the information warfare uh, area, which would include cyber and space, so the virtual battlefield as well. Uh, And then uh, lastly, the human weapon system, the investments that we're making in our sailors and civilians that are absolutely critical to uh, moving forward in this key decade. So if if I take a look at under the sea, the investments we're making, I'm very proud of the investments in undersea warfare we're making uh, with our um, uh, uh, fielding Virginia uh, Block 4 and Block 5 submarines, Block 5's mid-decade, or actually by 2028, we'll have hypersonics. So we'll have that capability fielder from our most stealthy strike platforms under the sea. Uh, There's an article in this month's proceedings uh, from Admiral Wyman Howard. He's the commander of Naval Special Warfare Command in uh, Coronado, California. And he talks about um, the Navy's commandos pivoting back to their roots as frogmen. It's an interesting piece to read. And it talks about how, how we're leveraging those skill sets, not just in the, in the counterterrorism fight, but also under the sea in that critical domain where we need to keep overmatch against our adversaries. And lastly, with respect to the undersea, uh, the investments we're making in AI um, are, are proving to be very, very useful uh, against an increasingly 
sophisticated adversary, and also the investments we're making in an advanced weapon under the sea. On the surface, similarly, we are, uh, we'll be fielding uh, the Constellation class frigate. We just christened our first Flight 3 DDG with an enhanced weapon system and, uh, and radar combat system last week down in Pascagoula, Mississippi. We'll field hypersonics on Zumwalt by mid-decade. Uh, mid um, we are making investments in uh, SM6 Block 1 Bravo and Maritime Strike Tomahawk. This budget tries to maximize those domestic production lines uh, so that we're putting weapons in magazines, of course, readiness being our number one priority. Above the sea, we continue to make investments in the F-35 and also upgrades to our existing Super Hornet fleet. Uh, we've, we're in our second uh, F-35 deployment right now, so our second integrated wing. Uh, by mid-decade, uh, half of our wings will be integrated with fourth and fifth gen aircraft. Um, by later on in this decade, they'll all be integrated. That's a substantial capability over our adversary. The, we the weapons that we're investing in, LRASM, JASM ER, again, maxing out domestic production lines. And then lastly, the MQ-25 on, uh, on board our carriers, A, as, a, uh, as, a, as, an, as an autonomous uh, vehicle uh, in a refueling role, frees up two or three strike fighters from that role and gives us more of a combat punch, extends range of our, um, of our air wing in conjunction with those longer range weapons. In the, in the uh, human weapon system, the investments we're making in ready relevant learning and live virtual constructive training are significant, uh, in fact, groundbreaking. And then lastly, in terms of space cyber and, and that domain, we've just uh, started our uh, Maritime Space Officer Corps. Uh, we are making investments in a float uh, targeting cells uh, that are uh, groundbreaking in terms of what they deliver fleet commander in terms of being able to uh, uh, create effects downrange. So all of that, all of that moves from this FITUP into the next uh, with a bigger transition into unmanned and automated. Thank you, Chief. General Berger, uh, same question. How does what we saw last week fit with where you want the force to be in the, I assume, 2030 is your target date, sir? Um, target date, uh, just to be clear, I think all of us have to have a force that's ready now. We can't take our forces off the field for five or six years, reshape them in, and put them back out on the playing field. So it's not a now or then, as a CNO and others said, it's now and, and then. This is the third year into our force design effort. But um, as, uh, as uh, CNO did, we, we would not have been able to even begin that effort if it hadn't been for the hard work that General Neller and the Congress did to rebuild our, our readiness for four years before, before he and I changed out, or we would not be on the path that we're on. So he took four years to rebuild us from the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict into a ready force and then started the modernization. This is, this is then third, you could say the fourth year into that effort. The approach that we took um, based on where we were was if you're going to match the speed of the change of the character of war, meaning the threats, technology, everything that's involved in the operating environment we're going to face in the future, then if you're going to accelerate, then you have to divest of some platforms. You have to adjust your force structure. You have to do things up front that will create 
the resources and then pour them back into the force. This is the third year in which Congress and the, this administration has allowed us to keep those resources and pour them back in. Those, are, those of course, all those changes are not without risk. The risk is that you have to be ready now, which we are. So you have to retain the crisis response capability, responsibility that the Marine Corps has, but also be ready four, five, six years into the future. I think General, uh, General McKenzie really captured it on Friday. He said, I'm a combatant commander. I have to be ready this afternoon. I really don't have a vested interest five, six, seven years into the future. And he acknowledged that the service chiefs have both. We have to give them the forces, the capabilities now and, and five years, six years from now. None of us, uh, just to go back to your start point, none, none of us have a, have a belief that we can wait until... 28 or 30 or 31. The, f the capabilities, the forces that we're fielding now are now, 22, 23, 24. It's on a very rapid pace. The last part of that, I would say, in order to move at that speed, you have to learn at that speed, which means a lot of experimentation, a lot of wargaming, a lot of trial and error, and the mechanisms to feed it back into your force development process to make adjustments along the way, which we have. So we have an aim point that's out 10, 10 years out, but we have inside the Marine Corps the ability to turn what we're learning, even from what's happening in Ukraine, the exercises that we're doing in Norway, what, forces are happen what the forces are doing uh, in the Indo-Pacific. You have to be able to plug that back into your learning process and make adjustments on as you go, which, which this budget allows us to do, keep that momentum going. Commandant Berger, thank you. Commandant Schultz, same question. You referred to the away game, and, and it sounds like the tempo is faster in addition to the uh, force being more dispersed than it's ever been before. Uh, how does your budget request feed that, sir? Yeah, thanks, Francis. I would tell you, just for a little context, sort of 2011 Budget Control Act and sequestration 13, we had a tough seven, eight years that followed that. We lost about 10% of purchasing power on our operation support, operation and maintenance budget. And I think we have turned the corner. 2018, when there was the 12% plus up for DOD, we were sort of outside of that sitting in DHS. But last few budget cycles, I think we, we've sort of turned the, turned the corner. 22 put us on about a 7% uptick, 23 builds on that. So I think the conversation about what kind of nation does the Coast Guard need is sort of now walking into the resource arena. I think three to 5% out year growth we can continue to deliver that Coast Guard. Where we're challenged, Francis, to be frank, is critical infrastructure. We're a 232-year-old you know, Coast Guard come this August, and we've been patching roofs and other things. So as we site new cutters, as we uh, you know, deal with most of our infrastructure investment has been where we've been whacked by hurricanes. You know, The folks that are in the Great Lakes are praying for hurricanes to come up there so they can get some new infrastructure. That's not a good model to have here. So we're, uh, we're, we're really working hard to, to have a conversation about you know, the readiness of the Coast Guard, we've made progress. Now it's sorta, of, to get ready, we gotta continue on a trajectory and we gotta get after some of this baggage we carry. I think I talked about readiness before, but you know, I talked about a relevant, responsive Coast Guard, the people thing. We're, we're gonna publish this Ready Workforce 2030. It's at the printers now, but it's really how we think through finding sufficient young men and women to be recruited into the service. How do we train them, modernize Ready Learning for us? And how do we retain them? You know, we have the highest retention across the services, but we got to do better there. And I think there's a piece, 23 budget, while the numbers aren't big proportionally to the whole budget, there's money in there for people. How do we 
create a Coast Guard that looks more like the nation we serve? How do we get after health, mental health? How do we get after some of the challenges that our Coast Guard families and our service families are realizing? This is going to be a tough PCS season. You know, housing costs, as I transition, I look out there and I say, boy, this is just a tough place even to find how you uproot and go somewhere. So I would tell you, budgetarily, Francis, we're having the right conversation. The 23 budget on the Hill puts some monies out there for for the Atlantic Partnership, it talks about the Arctic, talks about the Coast Guard and the Indo-Pacific. That's sort of forward-leaning. We generally go do things for a few years and we have a conversation about what do you want to pay for us to continue to do. I think it's very encouraging that, that the administration, the Hill is embracing the fact that, hey, a ready Coast Guard that can do some unique things given all our authorities needs to be funded properly. So I'm actually quite encouraged. The piece that really keeps me up at night a little bit is just this infrastructure challenge we pull forward. That is going to be a hot baton handoff to my successor to, to continue to, to message into that. I'll be messaging to that in my budget hearings in the coming weeks, sir. The Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Carl Schultz at the Navy League's Sea Air Space Chiefs Leadership Panel. More from the service chiefs in a moment. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. On tomorrow's show, the Zero Trust Journey at the Commerce Department. The Chief Information Officer at Commerce, Andre Mendez, keynotes CyberScoop's Zero Trust Summit today. And he's on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Department will release the unclassified version of the new National Defense Strategy in the coming weeks. The classified version is already on Capitol Hill. It includes three ways the department will advance its goals, integrated deterrence, campaigning, and actions that build enduring advantages. At the Navy League's Chiefs Leadership Panel at Sea Air Space Monday, I asked all three of the Sea Service Chiefs how their budget requests will help them achieve those objectives. The Marine Corps Commandant, General Berger, went first. For those of us uh, seated up here, this is, a, and a few others in the audience, this is the second time in my career we've had a pacing challenge. I think for the first decade or so, it was the Soviet Union. And I remember uh, as a lieutenant and a captain that you had cards like this, you had to study their formations, you had to study all their weapon systems, we knew their tactics, we knew their leaders, uh, and that arguably helped us in 1990 and 91 and beyond. Uh, so this is not deja vu. It's a different framework, but still, it's just, for us, it's a, it's a second time we've had a pacing challenge. For the Marine Corps, fitting into the national defense strategy in an ends, ways, means sort of way, we are, in, in, in terms of campaigning, you need, the nation needs a, f a force forward persistently, I would argue, that is also expeditionary and has a forcible entry capability. Why? Because that's, that's your first opportunity to deter. In other words, having the Coast Guard, Navy, Marine Corps presence, and I would argue special operations as well, forward all the time, not fighting their way in, but forward all the time, gives the secretary a better picture of what's in front of them. You're already in places they want to be. If they want to extend beyond the South China Sea, and if you're the PLAN or Iraq or Russia, if you want to extend your fence line further and we're already there, it makes it much more difficult. But it has to be credible the way that these two gentlemen uh, point out. So the, the campaigning part is part of the deterrence part. It's not campaigning for campaigning's sake. You're doing it with a, with a purpose in mind, that you're posturing the force all the time to be ready to respond in a crisis 
but your positional advantage gives you a deterrent capability. It, it, it alters the, the thinking of the threat. And, and Admiral Paparo is sitting right here, and that probably better suited than, than me to come up here and tell you how he's using, he and Admiral Aquilino are using those forces in the Indo-Pacific forward all the time rather than fight your way in. You have a better picture. You can respond to crisis faster. Mm -hmm. um, CNO, one of the elements of those three components mm -hmm. is uh, conversation about your force structure. Mm -hmm. The number for a long time was 355 ships. Mm -hmm. uh, the most recent number that I believe I heard was 500, including unmanned. What does that look like today? How does the budget get you to that? And how does that structure end? and then what those ships are uh, fit into those three components of the NDS, sir. Yeah, if, if I could, before I answer that directly, if I could just uh, add on to something that General Berger just talked about with respect to campaigning. Uh, the deterrence piece is really important, fundamentally uh, important because it's a cornerstone of the Secretary's strategy. But I also think in a world of gray zone competition, I also think uh, our presence forward allows us to be in the way and to expose malign behavior by China. Think about how important it was for the United States and the world, really, with respect to Russia's activity into, into Ukraine. We took away his strategic surprise. We took away his operational and tactical surprise. We pulled a rug out from under Vladimir Putin with respect to his ability to use false flag operations as a pretext to cross the border uh, and invade Ukraine. And so our ability to do that on a day-to-day -day basis in the Western Pacific, I would argue, is critically important. And you can't do that virtually. You have to be there to assure allies and partners to see that activity, to expose it. And so that's another element of why uh, a forward force, I think, uh, is critically important in conjunction with uh, General Berger's comments about being ready to uh, support the fight tonight uh, and to uh, and to make President Xi think twice about whether or not he's going to make uh, a malicious move. With respect to the size of the force, so the Navy's priorities are and have been steady for the past three or five years. Readiness, modernization, and capacity in that order. I think that those priorities have served, up, served us exceedingly well. Why? Because we need a ready, capable, lethal force more than we need a bigger force that's less ready less lethal and less capable. In other words, we can't have a Navy or Marine Corps larger than one we can sustain. That's important. So let's keep it real with respect to what we're gonna field out there. So if you take a look at our investments, right, we are trying to divest of those uh, given our top line and given the fact that we can have, only have so many ready ships that are manned properly, that are trained properly, that have ammunition in their magazines, that have uh, the proper maintenance uh, in order to do that, we've had to make some very difficult decisions about uh, divesting of some platforms. It's more than just a numbers game. It is a capabilities and a numbers game about fielding a combat credible force that can deter. If we want to talk just about capability and you want a force that can't, that, that, that's ineffective, take a look at the 125 BTGs that Vladimir Putin has positioned around Ukraine. That's not the force that any of us want. And so the investment strategy, if we want to flip that and make capacity king, you'll end up with a force like that because you'll pay for it with people, with ammunition, with training, and with maintenance. We're maxing out the production lines 
of all of our long-range weapons with high speed in this budget. Whether they're advanced capability torpedoes, SM-61 Bravo, Maritime, Maritime Strike Tomahawk, JASM ER, uh, El Razm, and all three domains, we're maxing out, trying to max out those production lines. We, we are trying to make sure that the fleet today is ready to go. And 70% of that fleet we're going to have 10 years from now. So the investments that we're making in hypersonics to deliver that capability by, by mid-decade, as well as the critical R&D in microwave and uh, laser uh, technology that gives us an enhanced capability to defend that fleet become incredibly important. I personally think you're on the right path. That path is not popular with everybody in this room, or certainly not on the Hill, but I believe it's a responsible path. And I think it both fields a force today that's ready to go, and it invests in a force mid-century and beyond, a uh, mid-decade and beyond, uh, that, uh, that will serve us well. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, at the Chief's Leadership Panel with General David Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and Admiral Carl Schultz, the Commandant of the Coast Guard, at the Navy League's Sea Air Space on Monday. My thanks again to the Navy League for inviting me to host the Chief's Leadership Panel. You can read more coverage of Sea Air Space in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast back tomorrow with the CIO at the Commerce Department, Andre Mendez. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.